Podcastle, episode 221, for August 14th, 2012, A Hunter and an Aaron Keen, by Daniel Abraham, rated R for violence. Hello, and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and gather around, my friends, you'll notice that today... We're right above the third tentacle of our floating castle in the sky, and thus, right above our armory of probable swords and deplorable words. Last week, we did a sword and sorcery piece, which I said was something of a rarity. This week, we're keeping our blades close to us and bringing you a lovely, dark, epic fantasy. And it's a long one, so let's cut to the chase, shall we? Podcastle's very proud to present A Hunter and Aaron Keen by Daniel Abraham, originally published in his collection Leviathan Wept and Other Stories. Not to be confused with the kick-ass Hugo-nominated space opera Leviathan Wakes, which he co-wrote with Ty Franks under the name James S.A. Corey. Both are well worth you checking out, by the way. In fact, if you're in the mood to check out longer stuff by Daniel Abraham, he's got plenty out there for you. Anna and I did our first spotlight here at Podcastle featuring his epic fantasy novel, The Dragon's Path. The sequel to that, The King's Blood, is now out and I like it even better than the first. In addition to those, he's also got the Black Sun's Daughter series of urban fantasy and yeah, I've read some of those too. All of it, whether you're poisoned space opera, urban, or epic fantasy, comes with my personal seal of approval. Additionally, he's writing the comic book adaptations for George R.R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones, and his novels, The Long Price Quartet, are critically acclaimed. Saladin Ahmed, author of last week's episode, called The Long Price Quartet the best epic fantasy books he's read in a long time. So there. Abraham's also the author of several podcastle episodes, including The Balfour and Merryweather Tales and The Kudondero and the Swede, as well as others. He is quite simply one of my favorite authors, and I'm thrilled we're able to bring this story to you. And who better to read a gripping epic fantasy than our favorite poet, scholar, warrior, Amal El-Motar. Amal's done double duty here at Podcastle as both author and narrator. She wrote in their lips rang with the sun as well as to follow the waves, and she last read for us Samantha Henderson's Five Ways Jane Austen Never Died. Though, yeah, we suspect there were probably many more than five ways. Amal is the Nebula-nominated author of The Honey Month, a collection of poetry and prose written to the taste of 28 different honeys. She's twice received the Riesling Award for Poetry, and her fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Apex, and the World Fantasy Award-nominated Thackeray T. Lambsheet Cabinet of Curiosities, edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. She herself edits Goblin Fruit, an online quarterly of fantastical poetry, and has an article on John Pertwee's iteration of The Doctor forthcoming in Chicks Unravel Time. Find her online at amalelmotar.com or on LiveJournal and Twitter as Tithani. Now, don't give me any crap about how winter is coming, because winter, my friends, is already here. Enjoy the story. A Hunter and Aaron Keen by Daniel Abraham 1. At first, when the lights of my home still glimmered in the darkness behind me, 
the cold only chilled. Then, pressing through the snow with the effort of the chase keeping me warm, the cold bit. At the end, it comforted. It meant the worst kind of danger, but with fear itself a distant thing, even danger failed to seem dangerous. Snow cracked under my feet and caked the wool of my leggings. I wrapped my father's hunting cloak tight about me. I walked because I could no longer run. Before me, the beast's tracks softened under new fallen snow, and with every moment, new flakes conspired to hide them further. The sword strapped to my back grew heavy, and I doubted my strength, even if the opportunity came. My daughter's doom whispered with every pine branch that brushed against me. Gone. 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 Slowly, the hunter within me, hard as stone and untouched by years of a different woman's life, woke. Her eyes saw the fading edges of the beast's track as time, two hours ahead of me, then three hours, then four. Her mind evaluated my shuffling stride and leaden hands. She tried to smile with my numbed lips. I felt her grim amusement. She knew a dead woman when she saw one. I fell without knowing that I fell. My foot touched the snow, my knee touched it, my hip, my shoulders. The soft white filled my mouth and nose and eyes. It tasted like rain. I pressed my hands down, trying to rise, and the earth passed through my fingers like fog. I believe he followed me. To happen upon me just at the moment of greatest need in a moon-dark valley would otherwise mark him as a fate or a god, and I choose to think of him as a man. I never knew how long he watched and shadowed me, or what error of panic or rusted skill made my passage conspicuous. In the moment, I only felt his hands lifting me. Rage and fear surged through my blood, first with the thought that the beast had found me, and, when that proved untrue, at the uninvited touch of a strange man's hands. The two outrages spoke with the same voice. I tried to shout, to push him away, to draw the sword that still hung from my back. He brushed my efforts away. His ice-blue eyes flickered with annoyance, but nothing more. His snow-flecked beard hung against my neck, feeling more like a dead animal than part of a living man's body. He turned, trotting with me in his arms as if the burden of a full-grown woman meant no more to him than carrying a child. And with that thought, I remembered my daughter and the beast and my doomed quest. 
I willed him to turn, to carry me, dead or dying, along the path marked out by the beast's footsteps. I cried out, flailed at him, reached back over his jouncing shoulder. The wind paid me as much attention. And within me, the hunter narrowed her eyes and waited to see what this rescue meant. Two. I killed my first monster in the autumn of the Salt Emperor's ascension. My father followed as I read the signs in the water of a small, fishless lake. This time, I smelled the broken reeds and cattails instead of him. I pressed my ear to the cold, mossy earth. I tasted the wind. All around us, the year lost its green. Leaves skated on the pond, blown by any breath of wind. Grass shifted from green to yellow, blades rubbing together like a million dry hands. And in a village two leagues away, five children lay in fresh graves. We hunted to prevent a sixth. I hardly stood taller than a child myself. My arm and blade together reached from my father's shoulder to his fingertips, but he acted as though he followed an equal. He never advised or made suggestion if I felt the temptation to look in his eyes for approval or disdain, dousing my performance like a hedge witch with a stick, I held back. The reeds said the monster stood no taller than a man. The water said it ate fish and snakes, that it shat and pissed in the pond, that its blood etched stone like acid. I walked the way my father had taught me, knees bent, weight forward on my feet and distributed equally, connected to the earth through my belly and the sky through my skull. A crane fluttered and called from the pond. I crept along the pond's edge and my father crept behind me. When I drew my blade, he drew his. The cave lay almost under the water, the dark arch disguising itself as a shallow overhang. The reed bed before it pretended that nothing passed in or out. The lie almost convinced me, but only almost. I stopped. My eyes narrowed, my blood went hot, and my mind perfectly still. Quick as a fish, something broke the pond's surface and vanished again. A bubble, a fish snapping at a fly. Or a monstrous eye peeking at a girl equally hunter and prey. I expected my father to speak, to warn me, to take control. He waited. The ripple moved through the reeds, the stalks shifting and bowing like a crowd at a temple. The monster leapt for us, for me. I saw flesh the green of moss, eyes the red of blood, claws like broken glass tipping splayed fingers.
its scream tore the air, and part of my mind shrieked with fear. But only part. My body slid low under its attack. My blade rose. I felt the shock in my wrists, but striking a practice dummy hurt as much. Less. Its claws raked my side, stripping my cloak to ribbons, exposing the tight-layered silk and woven steel beneath. For a moment, we embraced, the monster and I. The world contained only us. I watched its eyes lose focus, the life pass from it. At the end, it snapped wicked teeth at me, the reflex of a killer when only reflex remains. I stepped back, pulling my blade free. I gave no shout, not in the attack and not after. My father stood behind me, his blade still held at the ready. The wind alone stirred the reeds. He held his hand out to me and I passed my sword to him. The monster's black blood hissed and stank, bubbling in the air and light. My father's smile never touched his lips, only his eyes. You need a new blade, he said. The joy in my heart startled me. Three. I woke to the sound of fire. At first, I imagined myself in my home again, the beast and the abduction, the sick knowledge that justice had come and found me unready, all parts of a dream already fading. But as I came to myself, the illusion failed me. My father's cloak still wrapped me, my undrawn sword lay at my side on blankets of rough wool. I lifted my head. The tent rose no more than the man's height, even at its peak. Hide stretched taut across a frame of bent wood. A fire pit in the centre covered less space than my own two hands together. The man squatted before the flame, feeding chips and slivers of wood into it. His gaze flicked up toward me. As a child, a youth, a young woman, I passed my nights in temporary warmth such as this. My father's oiled cloth tents gave us only enough space to sleep, and he built his fire pits from earth and stone. No detail of those camps lived in this, but it made no difference. I saw at once how the structure would break, how it could strap to a mule's side or a man's back, how it changed a killing wilderness into a space where a hunter might revive an idiot woman half dead from cold. I deserved death. Anyone who rushed into the snow without thought of food or shelter, with only the image of her daughter wrapped in the fleeing beast's arms to guide her, deserved death. The hunter within me felt my shame and nodded. My father, many years dead, but still alive in my memory, nodded with her, but with more forgiveness. 
Luck saved me this time. Every hunter recognized the power of chance. Only fools relied on it. I sat up slowly. The man moved to my side, thick-shouldered and with black hair and a beard so thick I could barely make out the pale flesh of his lips. I tried to speak, to explain myself, but he replied only with grunts and clicks. None of the five tongues I spoke fared any better with him. Wordless, he held out his hand. A bit of fish, its flesh white as the snow, its skin the silver of coins. I accepted it. I sat by the fire, the hunter within me weighing my rescuer. Four. For ten years after my first kill, my father and I hunted together. Our commissions came from the great palaces of the governors, gold and silver, with a hundred huntsmen at our disposal. They came from low, dirt-farming villages, with only chickens and rice to offer as payment. My father taught me with great care that we accepted or refused our blades, not on the size of the payment offered us, but the need of those who made the offering. In the port of Song Tai, a woman with eyes black as ink and a mouth round as a worm's rose from the sea and lured men to drown in the night waves. We slew her. In the flint and dust hills of Calicor, a snake the length of ten men together haunted the valleys and strangled travellers in their sleep. We slew it. From the skies above the golden halls of Kinlun, a swarm of insects, neither beetle nor wasp, but something of both, descended from the moon, lifted virgin boys into the sky, and returned their still pink bones in the morning. And these also we slew. When sweet fame intoxicated me, and it often did, my father needed only to frown, and I would return to myself. Songs praised the master hunter and his daughter. Poets fashioned romances from blood and steel, craft and violence, the power of his bow and the subtlety of my sword. Women offered themselves to my father, and some offers, I think, he accepted. Men wooed me, but only a few, the most daring. Our last hunt together began in the height of summer. The island of Hun clung to the southern coast like a man about to fall from a cliff. High mountains marked the mainland's edge. Ragged stones threatened any boats that ventured across the narrow throat of water and a beach of pebbles and shells chittered with every wave's caress. The salt emperor's scroll called it the edge of light and darkness, and though the skies shone as bright as in the empire's heart, I knew what the words meant. The stones spoke of desolation, the water 
of sterility. High above us, the sun shone down on a land in which even wildflowers failed to survive. My father sniffed at the wind, rolled the pebbles between his fingertips, and drew his bow. The low, disconsolate complaint of the surf followed us. For the five previous months, the demon plagued the southern coast. Farmers woke in the mornings to find their sheep slaughtered and left to rot. Women gave birth to dead babes. A cohort of the emperor's guard sent to protect the towns went mad, slaughtering themselves in manners grotesque and terrible. And so the salt emperor decided to commission our hunt. And so his summons reached us at my father's home in the forests of the north. And so we walked down that fatal beach under that blasting sun and salt-sown air. The demon squatted on the western tip of the island, its scales black as a beetle's and slick with something not quite blood. Its jaw hinged like an insect's, and it sang a high, mindless song that set my teeth to aching. Wide, uncomprehending fish eyes clicked toward us and then away. I heard my father's last breath. He drew back his bowstring. His arrow flew, piercing the demon's left eye, and they fell as one, monster and hero both dead before they touched the ground. Later, I would find his letter to me. I would read of the demon's unholy curse and my father's fear that I might try to take his place at the last, protecting him from the demon by dying myself. Later, I would feel the sorrow and love and betrayal mixed together in my soul like milk poured into tea. In the moment, I merely shrieked. Five. The killing cold of night kept us from breaking camp until just before dawn. The man folded his tent into a pack small enough to sling on his wide back. I used his small knife to refashion my father's hunting cloak. Too large, it could not keep the chill air from my skin. I cut a long length down one side, bored a new line of holes, and laced the spare leather through them. The effort left me with a length of fur and tanned hide wide as my palm and long as my arm. I worked that into leggings and a cover for my boots. Finished, I judged the warmth of my body, guessed how the effort of the hunt would change it, made a few last adjustments. The man watched me. If questions troubled him, he kept them in silence. With tent and food pack, sword and dagger, he looked like a caravan with legs. I tried not to laugh. His eyes showed his affront at my amusement, 
but he allowed me to take his water skin and the leather sack of hard cracker and dried meat to put over my own shoulders with my sword. The sword my father gave me after that first kill by the water. The sword I'd worn the day he died. The sword that had brought the beast upon me. The man coughed, nodded to the east, and we set off. With each step through the thick and clinging snow, the wife and widow and mother retreated, and the hunter within me took control. The fear, the metal taste of panic, even the rage hid away under her cool regard. Under my cool regard. I kept my gaze in the middle distance, my attention aware but unfocused as my father had taught me. A rabbit saw us, startled and fled. Crow's tracks marked where something had died under the snow, but not my daughter. Mice, perhaps. My breath glowed golden in the low morning sun, and I knew everything. The details of my house, of the attack, came to me, and I considered them with my newly returned self. My house lay by the bend of a mountain stream. My daughter and I never wanted for fresh water or fish. But the richness of the place brought other things as well. When, in the cold hours of the night, I woke to a sound, I imagined only a squirrel or a rabbit, at worst, a badger. The scratching and sliding came again, like a wounded animal pulling itself across the floorboards. I rose and made my first mistake. Wisdom and habit called for finding a weapon, but I walked out to investigate. Built as a hunter's lodge, the house circled itself. The great pit of the centre room opened to a simple kitchen on the west, the winter stores and my sleeping chamber to the east, my daughter's small chamber to the north, and to the south, the winter. The embers of the evening fire glowed in the grate. The sound stopped as I stepped out from my chamber door. I called my daughter's name. Another mistake. Her voice, sleep thick and distant, reassured me for a moment. And then the beast chuckled. In the dim light of the near-dead fire, the silhouette moved in a heartbeat, a shadow against a shadow. I screamed, running toward my daughter's door, but the girl opened it as I came. In her nightshirt, she seemed to glow, an ember herself, the still warm remains of another fire. The beast scooped her up in its lesser arms. Its tail caught me in the ribs, throwing me to the ground. Its jaws rattled teeth like daggers. You brought this, it hissed. Burn in it. And the south door, the door that led to the wild, burst open. My daughter shouted once in fear 
and outrage. The memory squeezed at my heart, but the hunter refused all sentiment. In my memory, I lit candles in a panic, my hands shaking. Since the day I set my old self aside, since I locked the hunter away in the back of my mind and made my life as a mother, a fisher, a mender of old cloth, my father's hunting cloak never left its peg by the door. I grabbed it then. Since the day I first felt my girl stirring in my womb, my sword never left its shelf. It did now. I ran out to the snow and the cold and my own death. The hunter forced my mind to slow, to recall details seen but unexamined. The snow outside the house had glowed white in the dim moonlight. White with no trace of black, so no blood. The beast's vile teeth could snap a tree in half, but they spared my daughter's neck, for a time at least. Its claws could have stripped armor from the greatest fighters in the empire, but my daughter's sleeping shift protected her from its cuts. I saw none of it in the moment. Only now did I begin to understand these traces of the beast's intent. If it had wanted her dead in that moment, the killing stroke had lain in its power. If it wanted her alive, I laughed. The man turned to look at me, but I found no way to explain my relief and my despair. Poor bait stops drawing when the animal recognizes the trap. The best calls even after the prey knows. The caves in the north waited like a wolf trap under fallen leaves. The abduction began the monster's vengeance, but it didn't end it. With my child as the perfect bait, the beast drew me in, and even knowing, I allowed it to draw me. I prayed that it would consider her more effective alive than dead, that it wanted me to suffer precisely as it had, that it would not kill my girl until I stood witness to her death. Six. Perhaps every child goes mad when her parents die. Certainly after my father fell on that sterile stone beach, I lost my mind for a time. I remember his funeral in bits and pieces like shards of a shattered glass. The salt emperor came, resplendent in robes of silver and jade. The seven incorrupt gentlemen came in their plain black tunics. All the southern coast wept, but they also smiled. The hunter fell, but the demon fell with him. They proclaimed my father a hero, a savior, a gift from the gods and by the gods reclaimed. I knew that his arm could never wrap my shoulders again. I knew the silence of his voice would never end. 
I knew that all eyes looked to me as the killer of the next dire monster, and all hearts wondered whether my blade alone would suffice. Before he returned to his palaces, the Salt Emperor came to me. He offered his condolences, praised my father's strength and courage, and paid me the second half of our commission. I knelt before him, the casket filled with his silver at my knees, and considered seriously whether I could draw my sword and strike the man down before his guards ended me. When I lifted my gaze, I saw his eyes widen. He never offered me work again. In my next clear memory, I walked down a dusty road in a northern village, a cold wind upon me. Shutters clacked against their frames, and the villagers eyed me with naked suspicion and fear. My home waited still farther north, and I carried only the sword strapped to my back. My cloak hung black and filthy. My ragged yellow fingernails clicked against each other without my willing it. Perhaps I sang the demon's song. The hunter confronted me at the town's edge. He wore soft leather and a beard that aspired to more than it achieved. From a mat beside the road, he stood, walking out to block my way the way he might a rabid dog. His gaze locked on me, his cheap bronze blade at the ready. I stopped, not from fear, but confusion. What bandit made so awkward an approach, and with such fear? He started a chant to weaken the powers of the walking dead, but the syllables faded on his lips as I began to laugh. He thought me a zombie, a revenant, a vampire. He didn't stand against a fellow hunter, but a beast. I laughed until I howled, and my howls became grief. For the first time I wept, and once I began, I could not stop. The man left his chanting behind. Confusion complicated his eyes. Wordless, he bowed to me, turned, and walked away. Perhaps he recognized me, or perhaps he only saw that what I carried he could not defeat. I never saw him again, but I regained my mind. 7. My ice-eyed companion carried himself with a competence that reminded me of my father. We forged our way across the slopes and ridges of snow, the curves of the land beneath it living in my memory, but hidden. Bare, dark-barked trees shrieked their branches to the white sky. Ice glittered in a sun I could not see. And beside me he trudged, his steps even and steady and constant as my heartbeat. Where the landscape allowed it, he kept to the faster paths. 
where it denied us, he set his shoulders and pushed until the world itself yielded. For my part, I gathered sticks into a small bundle as we walked, breaking dry branches and raiding the scrub where winter had formed a canopy and left the brush relatively dry. When we paused, I dug in the snow, filling my pockets with stones. He cocked his head, failing at every opportunity to fathom my plan. My bow still rested unstrung in the winter storage of my abandoned house. The crows and hares flew and ran safe from my hunger. Poor planning on my part. It took us until sundown to reach the broad, flat plain where the lake slept. We left the land behind us and made camp on three kinds of water. Snow over ice over black, unfreezing water where winter fish slept and waited for the thaw. Another day to the caverns. Not more. He set his tent, cutting blocks from the snow with a thin steel axe and building a wall around its base to block the north wind. I took the stones from my pockets, pounded a flat space in the snow, and built a tor on which the fire could burn without drowning itself in ice melt. When he saw it, he smiled. Night came quickly, white to gray to black. The orange of our fire stood out, the only color in the frozen world. I tried to tell my companion all that brought me here, drawing figures of myself, my husband, who I then rubbed smooth and replaced with a funereal bow, and my child. He watched me and then drew something himself, a large hulking figure that clearly represented the man himself, a smaller figure, a woman, but of great age, not a wife, but perhaps a mother. And then something so small it had to represent a babe in arms. Then the beast and a crude circle that collected beast and baby and excluded the others. I drew a circle around my daughter and left my snow self alone. He nodded. I wanted to ask him why the beast hated him. What earned his small family this violence I made do with sharing dried meat that dried my mouth with pepper and salt and a tin cup of snow melt. Afterward, he combed his beard and pissed in a hole. His urine stank for only a few minutes before it froze. When I did the same, he watched me with neither disgust nor approval nor the implicit threat of a man toward a woman. His eyes belonged to a hunter, much like my own. After our small meal, he handed me a whetstone and grunted at my blade. As I sharpened it, he found another stone and set to his own. I remembered a chant I taught my daughter when she first learned her words. Care for the blade that cares for you. Sing with it and it sings too.
I began to hum under my breath, caught up in memory. After my husband died, I raised her alone. Other men offered to take up house with us, other women for that. But age made me greedy, and I accepted nothing that might dilute my time with my child. We sang, we worked, we fought and forgave and laughed. I offered her the songs and stories my father offered me, not because I hoped she would become a hunter, but because I knew nothing else. Looking back, the selfishness of it rang like a bell. In a town or city, a hundred other eyes offered safety. Even only another person at the house could have protected us. Instead, we lived alone at the bend of the river, and I fashioned a girl like myself, at peace with solitude, aware of the violence of nature and civilization, apart from both. Sitting in the frigid tent, I resolved that if I earned a second chance, I would show her other things as well. The comfort of companionship, the pleasure of singing in chorus, the safety of living at the centre of the herd. The man picked up my melody. Perhaps his thoughts ran in harness with my own. Just before bed, he wept quietly. I slept well and woke only slightly surprised to find myself curled against his broad, warm back. We broke camp. A fresh, bitter wind lifted flakes from the frozen lake and drove them into our eyes. The hunter within me laughed. The weather's cruel distraction failed. The hills rose up to the north, and with them the caves and the beast and the children. Eight. Over the course of years, I came to wear the reputation that once draped my father's shoulders. Even my passage through madness after his death lent me respect. The governors, the city administrators, the councils of merchants, and the boards that rule the small towns scattered through the empire sent their pleas to me, and I answered where I could. When the temptation to hold money over need came upon me, my father frowned in my memory, as in life. I grew proud less in my fame than in my skill. A hundred demons, in the shapes of poisonous frogs, threatened a river port. An ancient graveyard began to whisper violence in the dreams of the village above it. Rats the size of ponies, and driven mad by plague, overran a shipyard. Nothing seemed beyond me. I imagined my father watching me from some nameless place beyond death, and I pushed myself to deserve his respect, his admiration, and his approval. And so, on the day before the 28th anniversary of my birth, the letter reached me telling of the beast. Aaron Keen nestled in the western mountains, 
a city spun from silver and iron. Great bridges of chains swung there, connecting peak to peak, house to house, meadow to granary to common square. The buildings grew from the stone itself, crawling up mountainsides too steep for goats. An improbable and beautiful city. It guarded the passes between the empire and barbarian lands. Five times since the reign of the stone emperor, invasions foundered beneath those bridges and foreign blood filled the valleys below as if the earth itself bled. Only something new now haunted the steep heights, a beast from the barbarian lands. Prepared for armies, Arankeen found itself vulnerable to a thing that walked in silence, that killed without warning, that spoke the language of empire in hisses and clicks. Twice, bridges fell with fifty or more men on them, the chains bitten through. The greatest swordsmen and bowmen of the city stalked the beast, confronted it, and those few that survived crawled back to the city, broken in mind and body. The city elders feared chaos, and in their hour of need, they called for me. And in my pride, I came. I found the trail no other eyes had seen. Kneeling on the grey stone at the line where the trees ended, I traced it with my fingertips. Claws harder than the granite left white marks wider than my splayed fingers. Here, a drift of snow showed prints as if two animals had fallen as one, the smaller nestled low in the larger's belly. The wind stank of cold and storm, and yet the beast climbed higher. I stood up, the weight of my sword against my back drawing my attention only because the thin air made all efforts difficult. I squinted at the sheer cliffs above me and my cloak fluttered like a flag. If I continued up, a single well-aimed stone could kill me. If I returned to the city that clung to the mountains below, the storm would scrub the trail away. I watched the wind eat at the prints in the snow, the edges chipping away with each new gust. An hour ahead of me, not more. I checked the leather strap that held my sword in its sheath. I drank long and deep from my freezing water skin, slivers of ice rattling in it like gravel as I squeezed. And I climbed. For a time, the world became a long search for toeholds, cracks in the stone narrow enough to allow a knuckle or a fingertip. I wore no gloves to spoil my grip, and the skin of my fingers broke and bled. My sword dug against my spine, pulling me down toward the wide, empty air. But I followed the trail the beast left behind it. The cave hid in a fold of stone and ice. No ledge offered purchase before it, 
and so I hung from the cliff face, considering the hole and fighting for breath. The darkness seemed more solid than the stone. No doubts troubled me. The beast lived here and no place else. The wind blew hard, but the thin air had no heft to it. The storm bore down upon the mountain, white and grey clouds promising death to a woman clinging uncertainly to the mountainside. Only one path lay open. I shifted, lurched, leapt. The darkness took me in. Nine. The caves nearest my home spread down into the earth. The snow nearest the mouths showed a darkness where warm air from the belly of the earth melted it and left it to freeze again. We stalked through the empty land, he and I. Silence reigned. At each possible passage, each entrance to the underworld, he would pause and look for signs. A claw-marred stone, a child's footprint preserved in ice. We spent an hour or more on each, fearful of missing the telltale sign. Eventually, he made a grunting noise and looked to me as if I knew the truth, as if, because I lived nearby, I knew whether our doom waited in this hole or another. I resented him because he possessed something I wanted badly. An expert, a guide, a person on whose expertise I relied. He had me, and I had only him. But I still breathed because of him, and so I held my frustration to myself. On the first day, we found nothing. We slept in a cave that night, the flesh of his tent converted to blankets in a way I had never seen before. He sang a rough tune with words I never fathomed, but I followed as best I could. In the light of the small fire, his face looked younger and more lost. The beast drew him here out of whatever valley or mountain, plain or rugged seacoast he called home. It led him here, to me. Perhaps a road equally long and terrible waited for me as well. Perhaps the beast meant me to run after it forever. It and my girl. I wondered as I prepared for sleep how my companion brought this upon himself. Someone drove the beast out from the west. Him? His father? his mother, or did he carry some blood debt more like my own? I knew no way to ask. In a way, that pleased me. It allowed me the luxury of imagining some affront worse than my own. Again, in the night, my sleeping body found the warmth of his. Again, we made nothing of it. A man and a woman, together, alone and afraid, we took comfort in each other's presence, but nothing more intimate found purchase on the stone of our companionship. 
two equal emptinesses, we had no way to fill each other's souls. We woke late to a bright blue sky. The sun, bright and impotent, threw its light down onto snow twice as blinding as itself. From his pack, my companion drew a mask of smoked glass, strapping it over his face until he looked more than half a monster himself. Lacking his gear, I squinted. It sufficed. Just past the middle of the day, we found another cave mouth. Perhaps some scent alerted me, some invisible track that whispered to me. My hands kept finding their way to the black wood of my blade, even before he ducked deeper into the all-consuming shadow and cried out. I ran in after him, half expecting to find him dead already in the beast's teeth. Instead, he knelt just at the place where sunlight failed, limp rags in either hand. Tears steamed on his cheeks. In his left hand, he held a long, tapered length of thick cotton, well cut for swaddling a baby. Piss stained it, and I pictured the weak child, chilled and stewing in its own waste as the beast pulled it half across the world. And still, I noted that the cloth had not frozen and didn't yet have the stench that came with old piss. A day, I thought, less than a day. His child still lived a day ago. In his right hand, he held my daughter's sleeping shift. The blood staining it looked as recent. 10. In that twice damned cave far above Aaron Keen, on that day that called the beast's vengeance upon me, I unhooked the leather strap holding my sword in place, but did not draw it. I moved forward slowly, letting my eyes adjust to the gloom. A narrow band of twilight stood grey and forbidding where the light still reached. I knew that beyond that, I either risked lighting a flame or fought blind, and I wondered which gave the beast a greater advantage. I opted for light. My hard wax candle in one hand and drawn sword in the other, I slipped inside the mountain. A hundred yards in, the cave turned, and I made my way past that bend and out of the last light of the sun, just as the storm reached the peak. The roar of wind battering stone sounded like a battle heard from miles away. I recognized the scouring violence and power, but my small light didn't so much as flicker. I moved carefully, but quick, never looking directly at my dim single candle for fear of blinding myself. I held my weight evenly, connecting to the solid earth below me. I kept my senses open. The stones, said the beast stood just taller than a man, 
the close, musty scent of the air said it ate and shat in the caverns. I heard nothing. And then I did. Short and clipped, like a bird new-hatched, something in the darkness complained. I risked closing my eyes, letting the sound alone guide me. The echoes of the wide, tall caves hid the small, inhuman voice, like a gambler playing at shells hides his pebble. And still, I found it. The nest, I know no better word for it, stank of rotting wood and old bones. It huddled in at the base of a great, jagged underground cliff, like a ball of hair caught in a bathhouse drain. And within the slick bowl of its width, four dark, leathery eggs. Four eggs and one tiny, shifting thing, too weak to stand on its crooked legs. It whipped its awkward tail and the four small arms whirled and flailed. Evil yellow eyes found me by my candle, tracing the path from flame to arms to eyes before it hissed and spat. So young, and yet it knew me for its enemy. I looked up from instinct honed by long experience. The beast's eyes caught the candle flame. It hunkered on a ledge twenty feet above me, looking down at its children and at me. I held my blade at the ready. If I dropped the candle, the light would fail and we would battle in darkness, and I would win. No fear troubled me. Let them alone, it said, its voice a thing of hisses and clicks. Whatever you do to me, I promise no vengeance against you. Only let them alone. Perhaps I hoped to goad the beast down to me in its rage and despair. Later, I made that claim. Or perhaps I knew that whatever I promised, the eggs must break, the hatchling die. Or perhaps, like my father, I killed without sentiment, without concern for the price. With the beast looking on, I swung my blade from the wrist. A slow, lazy motion, as much limbering my joint as an attack. The hissing and piping stopped. The beast cried out once. Carefully, Never taking my eye from the beast above me, I slit each egg. Of the tangle of yoke and albumen and half-made limbs, only one possessed the strength to stand, and that only for a moment. With her children dead, I expected the beast to leap. I misjudged. She turned her tail pointing toward me like an accusing finger, her massive legs bunched. She leaped into darkness and never came down. 
I found the other passage only after I burned six candles to their last. The beast escaped into the storm that trapped me in the high caves for two full weeks. Surely the wind and the cold finished the slaughter for me. Surely the beast perished in the snow and thin air, from grief if nothing else. Arankeen suffered no more attacks. The beast killed no more men of the empire. I accepted my fee and the praise due a hunter who had delivered the city from its fear. I told myself that the unease troubling me grew from the inconclusive ending of the hunt. I told myself that the certain death of the beast in snow and ice failed to rise to the standard of professionalism my father taught. A clean kill, unambiguous, with a severed head to show. This carried none of that. But, in truth, a hunter kills without sentiment, without remorse, without allowing herself to see a reflection in the eyes of her prey. I failed in that. I saw myself in the beast's eyes as I finished her brood and recognized the cruelty of my actions. My father died for me and for the honor of the hunt and I could not imagine his solution to that problem, that moment. I only knew that mine disappointed him, and if not him, then me. I hunted for three seasons more. I took commissions in cities throughout the empire. But in truth, the hunter within me ended her work in those high caves eating the frozen bodies of the beast's children when her rations failed and waiting for the storm to pass. 11. The caverns and tunnels beneath that northern stone crossed and cracked in an inhuman, mindless labyrinth. As we descended into it, my companion pulled a device of tin and glass unfolded it and lit a hidden wick. Soft golden light, steady as a candle in still air, came from it. I drew my sword and he his hand axe. The cathedral huge stones balanced against each other above us, their unthinkable weights holding each other. Stalactites like teeth hung from the roofs of wide caves. The air grew warm as a spring day, fed by the breath of the earth. We walked out of winter, out of light, out of the upper world that we knew, and into a timeless season of darkness in which we had no place. No clear path told us which way to go. No unambiguous marks led us. We relied on my instinct and his, pointing to scratches on the stone, bits of gravel and dust that might bear the mark of the beast's claw, or might not. We walked into the trap clear in the knowledge of our danger. We had no choice. 
He held his child's swaddling cloth wrapped tight in his hand, protecting his fingers from the heat of his small lantern, even as he kept hold of the only scrap of his child. I wished that I'd thought to keep my daughter's shift with us as well, a banner to carry into this last doomed battle. With each shadow that shifted before us, I felt my shoulders growing tight, my breath fast and shallow. With each echoed footfall, I heard the ghost of claws touching stone. Walking beside and behind me, my companion and hunting partner carried the same tension. Crystals caught the light around us, flashing green and white and the deep yellow of old piss. The air carried the rich pong of bat droppings from some deeper chamber where the animals slept. And waiting for us, the beast and our children who had lived yesterday and might still. I wanted to shout, to set the stone walls ringing with my voice, to bring down the earth upon us if it would break the terrible, grinding fear. I wept without knowing that I wept until his wide hand on my shoulder steadied me. The sight of the ambush, the inevitable and obvious attack, lay at the intersection of two thin passages, one riding eight feet above the other. We walked in the lower of the two passages like prisoners in the bottom of a ditch. Every instinct shrieked of danger, every scrap of experience and knowledge promised that here, in this place, no defence would avail us. We made ourselves more vulnerable with each step into the darkness. I held my blade with a doubled grip, even though I had no room to swing. I waited for the beast's vengeance. It never came. At the end of the intersection, centuries of dust made a ramp of sorts that led to the upper passage. The beast's tracks dug into the soft earth as clearly as writing on a page. My companion and I stared at each other, confused and unnerved. I went up first, in a rush, prepared to repel an attack. And so I found the beast before him. It crouched low against a great stone, its eyes dim and sightless. Pale blood stained its face from where one eye hung, ruined. Its lesser arms still clasped a long gash along its belly, and the loops of its intestines pressed against the small claws. One of its greater arms remained, the other only a stump of cold flesh. Its flayed side and tail glittered bloody, the skin and fat cut away. My companion paused, looking at me. His wide eyes echoed my thoughts. Something lived in these caves more terrible than the beast, 
more deadly. And around the next turn, we found what? She hunkered in the darkness, her arms bloody, her hair wild. In one arm, she held a sleeping babe against her hip, wrapped for warmth in her fallen enemy's skin. In her other hand, one of the beast's wide, cruel claws made her dagger. The ice-eyed man howled and leaped forward, scooping the baby from her and pressing it to his chest. The baby boy woke, flailed his soft legs, grinned at his father. The naked girl, barely familiar in her paint of blood and exhaustion, only nodded to me. Mother, she said. I took my father's hunting cloak from my shoulders and wrapped it around her. On her slight frame, it looked even larger than it had on mine, and yet it belonged to her now. My little hunter, my girl who waited for her opportunities with eyes I gave her, my daughter who killed those who underestimated her. In the dim golden light, her exhausted smirk seemed to know more than I believed she knew. I lifted her dagger hand. Cuts marked her skin black and red. The black serrated claw still had a bit of the beast's flesh at the root. You need a new blade, I said. Twelve. If the man and his boy had stayed past the spring thaw, I would have welcomed them. In the event, I knew his homeland called to him, and the sorrow I felt at our parting didn't ache for long. I knew them as long as I did, and then that time ended, and my girl and I lived alone again. All my remembered promises to take her to the city, to change her and myself as well, came back as ghosts, insubstantial, powerless. We fell back into our routines, only with a deeper awareness that my girl had taken another step toward the woman still to come. I set myself to enjoying this time, these moments, in part from the awareness of their approaching end. In spring, I returned to the caves alone and buried the beast. Small animals had stripped much of the meat from its bones, but the corpse held together well enough to drag. I dug a hole, put my enemy in it, and poured old dirt over the body until the grave looked like the earth around it. For a day, I sat by the dead beast, as I had for my husband, as I had for my father, for all the dead who shaped me. I sat at my enemy's grave, the one whose children I killed and ate, the one who tracked me through years and across an empire only to die at my own daughter's hand. My father sat with me, 
his bow still holding the arrow that brought his death. The daughter who would someday leave me sat there as well, my hunting companion and his baby boy. Before the ice-eyed man left, I learned something of his language. He knew a word for the death of justice, for the sealing of accounts forever out of true. In his land, two families might fight over the same land for generations, and then the king would speak this word, and the land they held remained theirs, the boundaries set anew, and old grievances washed away like salt in a rainstorm. Marriages that survived decades could end with that word, or else endure because of it. Neither forgiveness nor apology, it killed history and began the world again. I never managed a translation that satisfied me, but near enough it meant the world has no place for justice. I put my hand over the graveyard dust, felt the cool earth between my fingers, spoke the word in his language, and went home. And welcome back. I don't know if you could notice it or not, but Amal mentioned to me how difficult it was for her to read this one, particularly the climax, because she kept getting all choked up. It's such an emotional story on so many levels. The kidnapping, the fear, the sins of the father, the sins of the mother, passed down to the younger generation, and whether or not in those sins redemption, or at least salvation, might be found. I love it, and I love the mouse reading of it. It might interest some of you to know that Daniel told us this story was originally a challenge set by Catherine Valente. After a conversation about Lars von Trier's film, The Five Obstructions, Valente gave a set of technical constraints for the story. A second world setting, a female protagonist, no being verbs, no more than six lines of dialogue, and a hunter and Aaron Keen was written in response. Somebody, please give Daniel Abraham more challenges. And speaking of challenges, let's turn to feedback. This week is for <laughs> another long one. Peter S. Beagle's We Never Talk About My Brother, read by Malcolm Charles. This was the story of two brothers, one of them a newscaster with certain, shall we say, supernatural abilities, who like to say things like, If I was God, I'd be nice. Generally, our foramites seem to agree that we are nice gods and really love this one, in no small part due to Malcolm Charles's narration. Danuli said, This also took about two and a half commutes for me, and I have to say, I didn't think it was too long at all. I loved every second of it. The story was compelling and the reading was exquisite. The ability that Esau and Jacob possessed was a new spin for me. I don't know for sure if it's an original idea, but it is for me, so that has me fascinated and yes, frankly freaked out a bit. Loved it. The Funky Gibbon said it was one of the best stories they'd heard on PodCastle and went on to praise Malcolm's reading, saying, A southern accent performed poorly can be grating and ruin a story, but Malcolm Charles nails this and I was totally taken in by his reading. I wasn't thinking, 
this is a reading of a story. I was just listening to Jake. That's the sign of a killer reading. And Atan said, I've loved this story from the first time I read it a few years back, and I loved it even more now hearing it read aloud. The narration was absolutely perfect for the story, and it really complemented it. The conversation took some interesting turns, with Atan also pointing out some of the moral ambiguities and quandaries of the story. Why don't you track that down over at forum.escapeartist.net? And while you're there, let us know what you thought of this one. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. We take a lot of pride in paying our authors, so they're not left out in the cold waiting for either a monster or the weather to finish them off. If you can't donate, please blog, tweet, Facebook, write a review on iTunes, or just tell a friend about us. Spread the good news, you know? Thank you so much. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us at PodCastle, Associate Editor Ann Leckie, Sound Producer Peter Wood, and your editors, Anna Schwind and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in a week to give you another one, but in the meantime, remember that even though you're the hunter, you might also be the hunted, and your children are most certainly watching you. We'll see you next time. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Gene Wolfe wrote that we are capable only of being what we are remains our unforgivable sin.